questions for our lives today. With that in mind, I just want to talk to our Heavenly Father right now. Let's do that. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus as a little baby boy in Bethlehem. All deity encased in this little baby born in a manger for us. Lord, we love you. You're an awesome God. And we know you're right here with us today. You never leave us. You never forsake us. And we worship you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to talk about Emmanuel and what that name means. You know, I love that name. It's a beautiful name. And every time I hear a beautiful name, I love it. Because my mom and dad came from Norway and named me Melvin. So you know I love when I hear beautiful names as opposed to mine. Names are powerful. They have meanings. And Jesus, same thing. He was named Emmanuel. This a powerful name that gives us a central promise of Christmas. Here it is. God with us. You know, I say this often at Riverview Church, but it has powerful meaning every time, for, at least for me, when I say it, when Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the what? The midst, right in the middle, right here. God's with us. He's alive today. And we want to talk about what that means. The name Emmanuel, the bottom line of our talk is this. The name Emmanuel should be a source of joy for everyone on the earth. God is not distant. God is not unconcerned about man's plight on this earth. But God is with us. God is for us. And God has way, made a way for us to be in relationship with him. That way that he made addresses our greatest need. The greatest need you have today, my friends, is not your next breath, not your next meal. Your greatest need is to be made right with the creator that made you. And God made a way for that to happen. And the reality is, God has never left us. You know, the deists believe that God wound up creation like winding up an alarm clock and kind of made creation and stepped away and went to a distant galaxy, unconcerned about what was happening here on earth. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible knows the hairs on your head. He knows the days you will live before you ever live them. He's intimately involved in your life. I know that's a great source of joy for me, knowing that God knows everything about what's going on in my life. This little baby born in Bethlehem, it's a mystery. I understand that. The mystery is we can't fully understand it, how God became this little baby. And even though there are many that want to diminish this baby born in Bethlehem, they want to say, oh yeah, great teacher, great prophet, but not God. The moment they do that, they take away the core of the gospel. The core of the gospel is this, that a life of infinite value laid down his life for us to take the penalty for our sins. He could do that because he was God in flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, there should be one nearby. Powerful passage that gives us an account of the birth of Christ. Matthew 1, we're going to start at verse 18. Matthew 1, 18. 
Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, that's a formal contractual arrangement between a young man and a young woman. Mary, probably in her early teens, engaged to Joseph. They had beautiful plans, wonderful plans, but God stepped in and changed their plans. And these new plans that God gave them would change the world. They'd change your life, and they would change mine. But still difficult, right? When the mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, a miraculous birth. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The contract needed to be broken. And even though Mary had told Joseph, I'm sure, I wasn't with another man. This is from God. That's hard to swallow, right? That's hard to take in. And Joseph certainly was struggling with it. But God met with Joseph. Verse 20, but he, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That prophecy that Matthew quotes is from which prophet? Anybody know? Isaiah. Thank you. Anybody know the chapter in Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 7, right? Verse 14. Matthew quotes it exactly. A miracle will happen. A virgin will conceive and bear a child. A life will enter this world like no other life has ever entered. The, the sign would read, no entrance. You can't enter life this way except for God. God would step in and do a miracle. And this unique life that was prophesied about for thousands of years again and again. By the way, that, that should be an encouragement to you as you believe in Jesus Christ. No other human person no other person on the planet has ever had prophecies made about their life like Jesus had. No other religious leader has ever had prophecies like the ones Jesus had. This is just one of them. There are like 60 major prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his first coming. If you take just eight of those, the odds of one person, just in eight prophecies, would be one times 10 to the 17th power, a massive number could not have happened by accident. This is just one of them. A virgin shall conceive, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. You know, that name wraps up so many of the promises of God, wrapped up in that name, Emmanuel, that this God would be living among us. Isaiah prophesied about it when things were very dark in the nation of Israel. They were rebelling against God. They were following idol worship. And Isaiah shows up on the scene. The book of Isaiah, by the way, is very much like the Bible. The Bible has how many books? Anybody know? 66. How many chapters in the book of Isaiah? 66. How many books are in the Old Testament? 39. In the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters talk about the groanings of Israel in their rebellion against God. 
But Isaiah comes on the scene, rebukes the nation of Israel. The last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah, by the way, how many books are in the New Testament? 27. In the last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah talks about the glory that Israel will experience when they give their hearts fully to God. And he gives this prophecy of the hope being wrapped up in this baby born of a virgin, that God would be with us. The first thing I want you to remember today is when we think of that first word of the name Emmanuel, God, the infinitely awesome hero of Christmas. We touched on it last week that the hero of Christmas is not Santa Claus. It's not Santa Claus. The hero of Christmas, without a doubt, is this little baby born in Bethlehem who was God in flesh for you and for me. The message that's changed your life and that gives hope to a world that's groping in darkness, a hopeless, helpless situation. But God made a way. He sent the best that he had. God with us. I love this quote that reminds us of who God is. It says this, God is the creator behind all creation. God is the designer behind all design. God is the lawmaker behind all law. God is the supreme fact of history. God is the supreme fact of science. God is the supreme fact of philosophy. I, I just, as standing here, reminded of a quote by Francis Crick. Francis Crick was the scientist who identified the double helix structure, the twisting ladder structure of DNA. There's a quote that I've shared with you a number of years ago when we were doing that study on creation versus evolution. And his quote was this, scientists have to constantly remind themselves as they look at creation that the design they see was not by a designer. See, God is the design behind all of creation. And as hard as science tries to push God away, his fingerprints are all around us. The planet he created, the worlds and the, the galaxies that he made by his power all point back to this awesome God. God is the mighty God, personally and actively present in the affairs of the universe. God is the great need of the human heart. God is the great need of the vast creation in which we live. This amazing God that we serve came as a baby born in Bethlehem, exactly as the Word of God prophesied. And if that is true, it reminds me of some amazing implications. The first is this, that if God is with us, we have absolute truth in Him. God does not give us falsehood. God gives us the truth. Jesus, when he came, he lived his life and backed up everything he said by his death and resurrection. You can be confident today that if God is with us, he will ensure that we have a book that gives us his plan. And it's right here in the word of God. You hold it in your hands. My prayer would be that you would have this amazing confidence in the fact that God gives us absolute truth. People want to say, well, Jesus wasn't God. The, the Bible doesn't say he was God. Jesus never claimed to be God. Uh, not true. Let me give you some verses. Next time someone says that to you, just from the Gospel of John, that point to the deity of Christ. What do you think? If you think about the Gospel of John, what do you think is the very first verse you should point to? If people say, oh, he wasn't God. He wasn't a God with us. What's the verse you point to? John 1.1, right at the beginning of the book, right? 
John 1, 1, here it is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Describes Jesus a little bit more, pretty clear from that verse, right? Then John goes on and says this, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. John 1, 14, a few verses later, clearly identifies who this word was that was with God and that was God that enlightens the whole world says this and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth see he dwelt with us the word here in the Greek text is the word eskenosen when the Greek scholars were translating the Hebrew Old Testament. They came to the story about God tabernacling with the Jewish people as they wandered in the wilderness. The word they used for tabernacle and God tabernacling, being in the center of his people, is the word eskenosen, the same word here used of Jesus who lived among us. He wasn't some distant God up in heaven yelling down instructions, but he modeled it for us in a powerful way to the point where John would say this, record this that Jesus said when Jesus was talking to the Jews. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I what? I used to be. Is that what he said? Uh, Before Abraham was, I was. Is that what he said? No. Before Abraham was, I had a good time. No. He says it in such a way that every Jew hearing him would clearly understand the claim that he was making. Before Abraham was, I am. Every Jew would know exactly what he was referring to. That back at the burning bush when God met Moses and said to Moses, Moses, I've chosen you to lead two million people out of slavery in Egypt. You might remember Moses said, hey God, you haven't checked my resume lately. If you, uh, you probably don't know this. I'm a fugitive in Egypt. They want me dead. And he said, by the way, God, Egypt has all of these gods in Egypt, and every one of them has a name. If I stand before them and tell them that you sent me, they're going to ask me, what's the name of your God? And at the burning bush, God reveals his very powerful personal name. He says this, tell them I am has sent you. The name that represents the self-sufficiency of God. The name that's an insult in the face of every Egyptian God. And they had hundreds of them. Every Egyptian God who was false and dead and not alive and did not exist. But we serve the one true God. This amazing tetragrammaton. That's what theologians call it. The four-letter name of God that we now refer to as Yahweh, the name that refers to the all-sufficiency, self-sufficiency of the living God. Jesus took that name and gave it to himself before Abraham was, I am. Clearly making a reference to his deity. Another verse in the Gospel of John that I love to turn to is John 10, 30. Jesus talking to the Jewish leaders says this amazing statement. Here's a great verse to underline in your Bibles. John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. 
And when I share that with some people, some will say to me, oh, Mel, come on. Jesus isn't saying he's God. What he's saying is this. He's saying that he and the Father are so in tune with one another. They're so connected with one another that the Father's goals are his goals. We're on the same team, the Father and I. He's not claiming to be God. Now, when someone makes a statement about that what, regarding a verse that you perceive to be very clear about its meaning, what's a good thing to do? We talked about it a little bit last week. Read the what? The context. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 10. These are all verses, man. You should be underlining these verses in your Bible because you will have people knock on your door who will say Jesus is not God. You can walk them through just in the Gospel of John, powerful evidence that Jesus is, and there's many other verses in the New Testament that support that as well. But John 10, 30, he's talking to the Jewish leaders. I and the Father are one. The next thing that happens, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man Make yourself what? God. If Jesus wasn't claiming to be God with that statement, he should have said in the very next verse, man, I'm so sorry. You misunderstood me. Put down those stones. You totally misunderstood what I said. But that's not what he does. Because that's exactly the claim that he was making. He's God in flesh. We might not understand it. We'll never in this life fully appreciate it. But that person that walked on this planet 2,000 years ago was the same person that made every star, every planet, every galaxy, put them in his place by his power and died on the cross for you and made the promise, I will never leave you, never forsake you. That's why the name Emmanuel is so powerful for those of us who believe God is with us. He'll never leave us. And when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. It's a promise that he backed up by dying on the cross and rising again. You know, when Martin Luther came around in 1517 and took those 95 theses in Germany, he was concerned about the church starting to follow men's traditions and men's teaching and leaving the clear teachings of the Word of God. He had 95 problems with what the church believed, 95 questions that needed to be addressed. He nailed them to the church at Wittenberg. We were there in 2017. I remember uh, watching a video from the government that explained what this celebration was all about, this 500-year celebration of remembering Martin Luther nailing 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg church. They said this, the Reformation was all about new ideas and new discussions that were being made following new paths. They totally changed the meaning of the Reformation. What Martin Luther was driving the church to do. Go back to the word of God. Go back to the authority of God's word, the book that he has given us. Don't follow men's teachings. See, my opinions, if they contradict the word of God, mean nothing. No authority. 
But Jesus affirmed the credibility and authenticity of the word of God by dying and rising again. That gave his opinions power. And when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. We rejoice in the fact that when Jesus died and we place our faith and trust in him, we were set free, chains gone, sins forgiven, adopted into the family of God, co-inheritors with Christ forever and ever by his power. I love the five solas of the Reformation. They should be five solas, onlys of ours. Sola means only or alone. Here they are. The five solas of the Reformation. Sola number one, sola scriptura, scripture alone. No other book should be held like the Bible is held in our hearts. No other book comes close. Other groups out there, they have other books that they put ahead of the Bible. That's wrong. Scripture alone is the only book that Jesus gave authority to. Sola fide, powerful. Faith alone. We're saved through faith alone, not by works. I hope you rejoice in that today. It's the perfect work of Jesus on the cross for you. You don't have to worry about being good enough to make it to heaven. Because when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, his righteousness given to you, you are forgiven. Your debt is paid. The chains are gone. You don't have to improve on that. But by your decision to place your faith and trust in Jesus, you say, Lord, I want to be like you. I want to follow you. My son Brady still loves basketball, 14 years old. He loves Steph Curry a player with the Golden State Warriors. He wants to shoot like Steph Curry. He wants to dribble like Steph Curry. He wants to be like him. I didn't have to tell my son, be like Steph Curry when you play basketball. He wants to be like Steph Curry. That should be our desire as well when we approach the cross. Lord, you did this for me. I want to be like you. Not to get heaven, but because I've already received this amazing gift that I did not deserve by faith. Faith alone, saved through faith. And it's Sola gratia, which means grace alone. We're saved by grace alone. That it was God's initiation sending this little baby to Bethlehem that opened up a way for us, that allowed us to come into the presence of God by faith in Him because of God's amazing grace, His amazing mercy that He lavished on us. He's pursuing us all the time, He's after us. By grace alone. The next sola is this, solus Christus. Jesus Christ alone is our Savior and King. And soli Deo Gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. My friends today, I hope you know that you're to live your life for the glory of God alone. That this little baby who came and died for you on the cross gives us a purpose and a meaning in our lives. And that's my next point. When you understand Emmanuel, God with us, it gives us a divine purpose. Like it says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Yesterday, our son went to a party uh, with some of his friends at school. It was in the afternoon and we were concerned about it. We were asking some questions and, and the last thing we said as we dropped them off, we're like, okay, we'll let you go. But last thing we said is, Brady, be a light for Jesus. Be a light for Jesus. Then Barbara and I went off and did a few things and came back home. He was already home. He must have walked home from the party. And we said, what happened? He said, Dad, I, you know, just we we're at the party and I just didn't feel good about some of the things that were happening. So I had to leave and I walked home. 
And we'd like to think that that reminder is a powerful one, not only for him, but for me. Be a light for Jesus. Be a light for him. No other purpose comes close to the one that he's given us. A purpose that can change the eternities of people around us forever and ever. First Peter 2.9 says this, and I love how you're described. This is all of you, right? All of us together. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have a divine purpose today because God is alive. God is with us, Emmanuel. Here's another point. Total access. If God is with us, you have total access to him. I have people say to me, Mel, when I pray, I don't feel like my prayers get beyond the ceiling in my room. I, I don't feel like my prayers are getting out of the room. It doesn't go past the ceiling. What would you say to somebody like that? Yeah, it really doesn't have to, right? Because when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God lives in you. You become the temple of God, the Bible says. He takes up residence in your life. It doesn't have to make it past the ceiling. When God hears your prayer, he's within you. He hears it. And there may be times when we feel disconnected from God, but he is always waiting with arms open wide like the, the father of the prodigal son, always waiting for his son or daughter to come to him. You have amazing access today. You have amazing access. I love what it says in Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every respect, talking about Jesus, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then it goes on and says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, because God is with you. You can draw near with confidence to this God. That's what was meant when Jesus said on the cross to Telestai, it is finished. And at that moment, the temple veil was torn from top to bottom between the holy place and the holy of holies. God was sending you a message and me a message saying you have total access. I know exactly where you're at. I know exactly what your struggles are. I know exactly what your sins are. You have total access to a God that loves you. This awesome God has made himself totally available to us. And with that comes this, complete victory. We have God for us. Like it says in Romans, if God is for us, who can what? Be against us. Absolute victory in Christ. Don't doubt it. If you've placed your faith and trust in him, you have this awesome person with you. When I was in uh, graduate school at seminary in Chicago, I played on this uh, basketball league in the area. It was a pretty good league. A lot of college players out of, just out of college played in the league, a lot of good players. And uh, I had played the year before, and we were going to play again in the league. And one of my friends who worked at a health club said, hey, I work at this health club, and this guy came in, and he's really tall, and I got to know him. And I asked him, would you like to play on our league here in North Chicago? It's a pretty tough league. We'd love to have you. And he said to me, and the guy said yes. I said, who was the guy? His name was Harvey Catchings. Seven feet tall, one of the best shot blockers in NBA history. He had just retired, moved into the area, and my friend recruited him for our Deerfield Basketball League. 
So you can imagine what we'd do. You know, we'd have like nine, ten guys on the team, and we would walk out of the locker room. We'd always save Harvey for last to come out of the locker room because the guys would be looking like, oh, they're, they're nothing, they're nothing. Oh, they're, wait a minute, who's that seven-footer walking behind them? Harvey Catchings. We knew that if we were ever beat by another player and he was going in for a layup at the basket, Harvey would come out of nowhere and just swap the ball to the 21st row. That's the kind of player he was. And we dominated the league. I almost felt badly, almost felt badly, almost, for the other teams. They had no chance with us. And there were some good players, but we had Harvey on our team. And we ended up, of course, because we were like such good, we, we walked a little bit more of a swagger, right? Because we had Harvey on our team, and we won the championship. Yeah, we. But we had Harvey on our team. Now, that's a really poor example of how you should feel when you hear the name Emmanuel, God with us. You have God on your team. Now, there may be trials in this life. There'll still be battles on the court, right? But you know you have ultimate victory in this Emmanuel, God with us. But thanks be to God, Paul writes, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, in Hebrews 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Don't be distracted about any other thing in your life. Take on this amazing purpose that God has given you to make a difference for all of eternity. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. So much greater than Harvey Ketchings, amen. So much greater, so much greater. He sat down on the throne of God. Here's the second thing. We'll get this quickly. Emmanuel, uh, with, I want to look at the word with real quickly. The incredibly amazing access. We talked about it. You know, in the beginning, God was in creation with Adam and Eve. Then it gets even better than that. Jesus came as a little baby boy incarnate at that first Christmas. Gets even better than that. Now God lives within you, indwelling you, with inside you. When the church was born, he took up residence in the hearts and lives of all believers today. Which leads us to the last point. Emmanuel, us. The surprising benefactors. God is with us. He's with you. And my prayer would be you would never feel alone. Yes, it's a step of faith, but the step is a small one. The evidence is so powerful that Jesus died and rose again that this Jesus would save his people from their sin. And like we talked about before, if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen, church? Amen. Let's bow our hearts in prayer this morning. As your hearts are bowed today, I want to ask you, have you placed your faith and trust in this amazing Emmanuel, God with us? And we know that what Jesus said is true. He's with us right now. Today, you can just tell him in your heart, Lord, I, I put my faith and trust in you. I, I've been wandering from you. I've been drifting away from you. I need to put my focus back on you. I need to fix my eyes on you, Jesus. And Lord, we want to thank you for this amazing Christmas season that truly reiterates the greatest gift that we have ever received in our lives. You came as a little baby boy for us, for me. And today we lift you up, Jesus. We glorify you. 
You laid down your life for us, the greatest news the world has ever heard. And we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together and sing this song. Oh, praise the name.